Okay, people? Um, I'll uh, talk a bit about Genesis 12 to 50 and history as a lead-in then talking about the Exodus and history. Uh, as I understand, this is something that uh, didn't feature in the um, video last week because it must have, I must have done it at some different point in the course. So I'm on page 60, Genesis 12 to 50 and history. And that's what you, you never did. Right? Right, okay. Now, some features of Genesis 12 to 50 reflect the conditions of a later date than the, than the time of the ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Ura is described as Ura of the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans weren't there, weren't in Ura at that period. It was centuries later before they were there. Uh, the story talks about camels, and it's usually reckoned that camels were not domesticated in this period. Genesis 26 uh, and elsewhere talks about the Philistines. The Philistines were, uh, and come, yes, they didn't arrive till um, about the same time as the Israelites or a bit afterwards um, in the Promised Land. Genesis 36 talks about uh, Israel's kings. Well, obviously Israel didn't have any kings in the time they were on And then there is that use of the name Yahweh that I referred to just now, um, which is characteristic of Israel from Moses' day onwards, and Exodus 3 and 6 make clear that it's from now on that Israel um, speaks of God and speaks to God as Yahweh. But Genesis uses the name Yahweh when it's doing its own narrative, but also puts the name Yahweh onto the lips of people back within Genesis. Those are aspects of Genesis 12 to 15 that reflect the conditions of a later date than the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob themselves. On the other hand, Genesis 12 to 50 portrays a religion and a way of life that's different from the one portrayed in later Old Testament books. For instance, the um, ancestors worship at sacred trees. And later on, uh, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, they set up sacred columns or posts or pillars. Later on, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, the worship is family-based. There are no priests. There are no prophets. There's no Sabbath. There's no food laws. They worship uh, Ale, um, uh, and, uh, and they worship uh, the, go uh, the go God as the patron god of the clan. Um, those um, ways of talking about God I was referring to just before the break. Um, angels show up from time to time. Faith rather than obedience to a rule of life. Uh, is the nature of their commitment, um, the nature of their relationship with God. There are those morally ambiguous stories that occur. There's an openness to other peoples, as in that story about Melchizedek. There's no holiness in the sense of separation from other peoples. Uh, and there are customs that fit, um, in other words, the second millennium. we know from a place called Nuzi um, in, uh, in Syria uh, of a custom whereby um, a woman who couldn't have children uh, would um, encourage her husband to take a substitute or an extra wife um, as a means of being able to, uh, to, for, to for the family to have a baby kind of surrogacy arrangement um, if you can't have children we know that kind of practice that, that kind of social custom uh, in uh, not far away from the context of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In all those ways, then, Genesis 12 and 50 is portraying a religion and a way of life that's different um, from the one portrayed in later Old Testament books. Paragraph 3. The differences between Genesis and the subsequent books indicate that Genesis does prevent, preserve accurate memories of how things were in the ancestors' time, but that the stories have been updated in detail. That, at least I'll put a question mark at the end of that um, sentence, but that's my inference, is that when you look at those two, the, the, the data I gave you in, chapter, in paragraph one, and the data I gave you in paragraph two, where does that point to? Um, it suggests that Genesis, by being able to portray this different way of life, um, is portraying something that uh, something of how things were 
in a period that was not their own time. But the, the data in paragraph 1 indicates that as you get with other documents in the Old Testament and with the Gospels, uh, there, are there are references uh, that have been updated in order to um, communicate with people who are living in a later time. You have to keep reminding yourself that these stories were not written down for the people to whom they happened. You don't need them written down for you when they happen to you. It's, it's, as Paul said in that 1 Corinthians passage, in 1 Corinthians 10, they were written down for other people to learn from. Um, and so they are written in, written in such a way that people say in the, the time of Israel itself and understand um, them and see uh, a, a, a oneness with their own lives. Paragraph 4. On the other hand, the current attitude to the historical value of Genesis is generally now very sceptical. All respectable archaeologists have given up hope of recovering any context that would make Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob credible historical figures. This more questioning approach starts from the conviction that Genesis was written in the period of the exile, or later, and puts more emphasis on the details that don't fit the ancestors' time, like the reference to Ur of the Chaldeans, and on the way that Genesis addresses later questions. When, at the very beginning of Genesis, when it talks about Sabbath and in the Noah story, uh, reference to food laws, and in the Abraham story, reference to circumcision. Those are questions that in a later context, when Israel was um, cheek by child with other peoples, might become important questions. This questioning approach to Genesis then asks whether it's believable that a book written so much later could have preserved an accurate account of second millennium life. How could the information have been preserved? In other words, they couldn't have done it, therefore they didn't. <laughs> the distinctive features that I've noted in paragraph 2 uh, might indicate that life in, life in monarchic times was not always the, the same. In other words, the kind of picture that you're getting um, in the books of Samuel Kings might be how things were in Jerusalem around there. Maybe there were parts of the country that, that, that lived the way that the guys, in, that the way that the stories in Genesis work, so that what's presented to us as a chronological difference is actually historically more a geographical difference. There could have been areas where people lived in the way that the Genesis stories describe. Well, as I say, I find it easier to believe if the Old Testament's own outline, in which the stories in Genesis reflect, do reflect an earlier style of life, and in which, by whatever means, um, the stories have been that's, that's been passed on and held on to, um, and the logic then perhaps works the other way around. Um, but certainly, that it's difficult to see that there is a there is a view around um, in the world of scholarship at the moment mostly held by nasty Europeans, um, that um, the stories, these stories were made up in the period after the exile. Uh, well, that, that's, um, it requires a bigger that requires a bigger leap of faith um, to understand how the stories could take the form that they do than some kind of version of, the, of an attitude of history that I described uh, Let me talk about the deal with the equivalent question about the Exodus and then if there are things you want to ask, um, we can come to them. So, page 65. Approaches to the historical investigation of Exodus, it says at the top of the page. <coughs> Approaches to the historical investigation of Exodus. <coughs> uh, J.K. Hoffmeyer, who's an evangelical Christian, he teaches at Wheaton, I think, but it might be the other place, it might be Calvin. Teaches Trinity. Thank you. Um, and wrote a book called Israel in Egypt and has written another more um, recent book, but that's one, um, one that deals more with these particular issues. Shows how uh, the Exodus story fits well against the background of Egypt in the 13th century. There are many accurate details in the story that are surprising if it was all made up later on. On the other hand, Bill Deaver, uh, who I quoted from in connection uh, with Genesis, Archaeological investigation of Moses and the Exodus has been discarded as a fruitless pursuit. Indeed, the overwhelming archaeological evidence today of largely indigenous origins for early Israel leaves no room for an Exodus from Egypt. Uh, which is an, another, uh, same kind of argument, well, a, a variant on the same kind of argument that's used 
with regard to Genesis. That is, it couldn't have happened, therefore it didn't. But in this case, in this case it couldn't have happened because the archaeological investigation of um, Palestine itself came in itself um, over the past 40 years since the 1967 uh, war um, has... Um, uh, revealed some very significant um, true insights about the nature of settlement um, in Canaan, in the, in particularly in the mountain area where, where the Israelites lived, um, that, that makes it look as if the, what, the, the people, there was a, con a continuity of the kind of people who were there, that the vast majority of Israel didn't come from outside. Well, obviously, if the vast majority of Israel didn't come from outside, then there wasn't an exodus. But that, that's the way the logic uh, works. Um, these two guys, uh, Van Henten and Huta uh, Pen, or something like that. Any Dutch? There is a Dutch person present. Where is she? And she's gone. Uh, they're, they're Dutch guys, so I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. Uh, <clears throat> Why have you got the extra story then? What's the significance of the extra story? Um, and so the extra story supports the life of, of Ephraim, the northern kingdom, because the extra story uh, emphasizes their link with Moses, which goes behind Jerusalem and the temple. That is, after the two, um, after Israel is divided into two, into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Ephraim uh, and Judah, the Judah guys have got David and they've got the temple and they've got Jerusalem. Uh, the the Ephraim guys haven't got any of those things, and somehow they've got to bolster their own position ideologically, theologically, religiously, historically. And they do that by generating the extra story, which is a story that, um, it, that, that in which they are prominent, um, and that thereby downscales the significance um, of Jerusalem, David, the temple. An older statement by uh, Philip Hyatt. Um, the book of Exodus undoubtedly rests upon a solid core of historical happening. It is not possible, however, for us now to disentangle all the historical and legendary elements in this book. The crossing of the sea was made possible by a combination of natural occurrences and some fighting between the fleeing Hebrews and the Egyptians. That's a really interesting remark, because if there's one thing that Exodus doesn't refer to, it's any fighting. The number who escaped was probably not more than a few thousand. That turns the story into something you could believe, as it were, without needing too much God. Uh, Graham Davies, who is a professor in Cambridge now, um, suggests these, these kind of minimal points about um, why some, some kind of exodus uh, it's, it's difficult not to believe in. Not, not difficult not to believe in uh, some kind of exodus. Um, the very widespread reference to the Exodus throughout the Old Testament, could that really have been generated by uh, a piece of fiction? Uh, the reference to Pithon and Ramses, the two cities, not names that would be likely to be known at a later period. Moses' Midianite connections, not the kind of thing you would have invented. Uh, the references to the Hebrews in Exodus, not a, another feature not likely to come from a later period. The antiquity of the Song of Moses, that, that um, song in Exodus 15, whose Hebrew is often reckoned to be um, very ancient. And a report from outside of the Old Testament um, uh, by a, a, an Egyptian frontier official uh, on admitting migrants from the East. Um, little pointers, little concrete pointers that's, that Brian Davies um, conclude that the story can't just be made up. Um, and for another moderate study uh, of the historical questions, that is, not as, not as conservative as Hofmeier uh, and not as um, sceptical as Deva, uh, then this book, The Quest for the Historical Israel, you know about the quest for the historical Jesus, well, this is The Quest for the Historical Israel, by Israel Finkenstein and Amahai Mazar, uh, two, two Israeli... Finkelstein might be an American Jew, and uh, Mazar is certainly an Israeli Jew, um, uh, in that book. Some of the critical issues, what solid evidence do we have for the dating of the books of Exodus? The answer is, we don't have any. Uh, early, late, it's all guesswork. 
How do we evaluate the tradition of Moses' authorship of the Torah? If you take that um, tradition very seriously, then you're home and dry. Um, because Moses is in a strong position to uh, be able to tell it over Would Israel make up a story about having its origins in a place like Egypt? Some of the theological issues. Could God, would God, have inspired a fictional story? I think it's, uh, I think God, God could, would, and did inspire fictional stories. Uh, so the question for me is more, is this one? Um, and that links with the second of the questions at the bottom there. If Exodus 1 to 18 is fiction, does it matter? If it's a mixture of fact and fiction, does it matter? Last summer, I think it was, I had a visit from um, one of the rabbis from the uh, Simon Wiesenthal Research Centre um, in West Los Angeles, who wanted to talk about um, how we taught the Old Testament. And we got to talking about, uh, well, I think he asked me, supposing there was produced incontrovertible evidence that the exodus ever happened, as it were, what would I do? Well, how would that affect my thinking? I, th I think I must have already said, no, I need, yeah, I need, to, I need to back up. Um, the, the, the Israel, that the Exodus story, well, I'm going to back up, need to back up even further. <laughs> if Jesus is not raised, then your faith is vain. Um, if Jesus didn't die, your faith is pretty vain too. Uh, because the, the Gospel story is a story about things that God did. And if God didn't do them, then the Gospel disappears. It might still be true that God is love. But it doesn't. But but it, if it isn't the case that God gets so loved His Son, so God so loved the world that He gave His Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. If it isn't the truth, if it isn't true that God died, that Christ died uh, to sort out the problem of our sins and rose from the dead by justification, then the gospel collapses. It becomes a nice idea, but not not something that um, there's any evidence of the truth of. Now the same uh, applies if you're an Israelite. Uh, with regard to, say, whether the Exodus happens, happened. Um, and I think, so I think I said something on those lines to this, to this um, rabbi, and said that nevertheless it was fine by me for it to be a mixture of fact and fiction, in, in the way that I've talked to you earlier in the quarter, um, about there being a mixture um, of, um, uh, of, being on a spec of, of the Bible being on a spectrum, uh, embracing both things that happened and also ways of communicating things, symbolism, and so on. Um, so then this, 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 this rabbi said to me, okay, supposing somebody produced, it's difficult to imagine what incontrovertible evidence of something not happening is, um, but let's suppose that it could be produced. Um, what would I do? Uh, and so I said, well, I guess I'd have, to, I'd have to rethink that theological conviction I expressed just now and wonder whether maybe, um, not that it would um, make me stop believing, but make me ask the question whether God could inspire the extra story as a fiction and it could still be valid. Uh, and he said, I wouldn't. That is, he'd carry on being committed to believing that God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, even if somebody produced what was allegedly incontrovertible evidence that it hadn't happened. And I kind of thought we did, and I think he was right. Um, and maybe that relates a bit to that question at the bottom about whether our faith in Christ makes us read the evidence a different way. Um, that, um, uh, that, that because, because I know that Christ gave me this book, uh, and that he is, that he underwrites uh, its truth, and therefore the truth of its gospel story, um, then, uh, and given that I can't see how its gospel story would stand if there had been no access at all, then um, I uh, would be challenged by this allegedly incontrovertible evidence to keep on believing uh, in the basic nature of the story as historical, um, because that would be, uh, I would be re reassured by Christ that that was the right stance. Um, over page to uh, a bit more detail on what that might mean. Page 66. Where it says at the top first, Merneptah's stele. A stele is, a, is an inscription. Um, a, a commonly a victory inscription. Something you put up to commemorate a great achievement of yours. Pharaoh Merneptah 
uh, campaigned in Canaan about 1210 BC, and he put up an inscription, a stele, that was discovered in his tomb. And some of the lines of this inscription say, Canaan is captive with all woe, Ashkelon is conquered, Gaza seized, Yanoah made non-existent, Israel is wasted, bare of seed. Kor has become a widow for Egypt. All who roamed have been subdued. Um, well, evidently in saying that Israel is wasted and bare of seed, uh, he was um, exaggerating just a tiny bit. Uh, for Israel, his stealing uses the, hierogly the hieroglyphic symbol for a people, not a place. At least that's what the books always tell me. I don't read hieroglyphics, and let's be honest about this, but that's what all the books say. It uses the symbol uh, for a people, not a place. So, that, so it's very telling both that this steely mentions Israel, and that it rather implies that they are a people who aren't quite settled yet, uh, which is exactly what it ought to imply, given the date um, of it, uh, on the assumption uh, of a 13th century date of the Exodus, which takes you into the next paragraph the date and the people. Traditionally, the Exodus was dated in the 15th century on the basis of some counting that you can do um, through 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, um, which says that... In the 480th year, after the Israelites came out, came out of the land of Egypt... In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeb, which is the second month, he began to build the house of Yahweh. So 480 years from Exodus to the building of the temple. Uh, the trouble is, that, and so, so traditionally the Exodus was dated in the 15th century, the trouble is uh, all other uh, attempts to link uh, Israelite history and Egyptian history, well, more or less all other attempts, point towards the date in the 13th century. Uh, when Ramesses II is the pharaoh of the Exodus, and that's um, you, the, the, certainly by, yeah, by far the most of people who believe in the Exodus at all uh, reckon that's the date to give it. Um, <clears throat> maybe then the it's an example, as with those um, figures of the ages of people uh, in Genesis itself, um, that is more of, of, sim of symbolic significance. Maybe to say 480 years is to say 12 generations. 40 years a generation, typically, um, in, within scripture. If actually a generation is more like 20 or 25 years, then it was 12 generations, um, give or take, from the Exodus to Solomon's day. In the accounts of the Israelites actually leaving Egypt, Exodus 12.37 tells you that they journeyed from Ramazim to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot, besides children. Where are the women? They've gone on one of those women's retreats, you see. They chose the right moment to go on a retreat. And left the poor guys having to haul out these kind of about two million children. <laughs> it is odd that the men the, 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 um, and uh, the, the children there. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody's cooking the dinner. That's yeah, that's right. It's the food. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's that's even a, apart from the mixed crowd who went up with them. Some other more generalized, another more another more generalized version of people like Jethro, people who weren't Israelites but who um, threw in their lot with the Israelites. Um, but then, if you are talking about 600,000 men, you're talking about a group of two or three million people. Um, now, now, of course, God has no problem uh, in looking after two or three million people and taking them from Egypt to the Promised Land. But in terms of the numbers of nations of the day, the number doesn't make sense. Um, that's the kind of number of people that there were... Uh, the, the, the Egyptian people itself would have been two or three million people. Uh, never in all times. Never... I, I mean, until the last century, last half century, has Israel been sort of been... Um, um, and it, it is odd then in Deuteronomy 7 that God should comment um, that he took hold of, that the reason why he took hold of the Israelites uh, wasn't because they were a large people but boy they were pretty large really on that basis 
Uh, and if the Israelites had proceeded like a wagon train, it would have been 2,500 miles long. Even with the wagons 10 abreast, it would be 250 miles long. Maybe only some of the tribes were involved, some of the clans. Maybe the numbers include the people's ancestors and or their descendants. It's a way of saying uh, we were there when we were there when they crucified my Lord. Or maybe the word for a thousand uh, actually is a word that means family. Well, it, it sometimes is um, that. Uh, and obviously, to turn it from 600,000 to 600 families would be quite a neat trick. It would make the whole thing much more uh, feasible. Uh, you can see some more uh, discussion of that problem about numbers uh, in the dictionary of the Pentateuch. A number of careful studies, says John Durham in his commentary, have established beyond cavil, whatever cavil, whatever a cavil is. Uh, I think it's a thing that the, is that a thing that the judge slashes. That's a gavel. Oh, anybody know what a cavil is? Jim will um, Google it. An unnecessary objection. Thank you. Have established beyond the necessary objection what may be called the contextual plausibility of the Exodus narrative without confirming the historicity of even one of its events or personages. We can prove, of course, that Egypt was there, and even that there were in Egypt displaced persons subjected to oppressive forced labor in this sequence of dynasties. We can prove that many of the laws and law forms of both the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and the Book of the Covenant are anticipated by earlier and companion law codes, whenever possible data suggested for the earliest form of the Exodus laws. We can prove the presence of people very like the early Israelites appear to have been in the Sinai Peninsula, in the wilderness area of Canaan Pania, and in general in all the other places where the books of Exodus and Numbers and Joshua place the people of Israel. We can present archaeological data to support more than one set of dates for the wilderness wandering and of the conquest and settlement. What we cannot do, without more specific data than we have, however, is provide historical confirmation for anything or anybody mentioned in the book of Exodus. No one has yet given any convincing extra-biblical hint, much less proof, of any single part of the Exodus narrative. Apart from Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ratmanses, which can be generally located, and the, of the oasis of Kadesh Barnea, which can certainly be located, we cannot fix with any degree of certainty one single place of the many mentioned in the book of Exodus, not even Mount Sinai itself. This is not, of course, to say that the events and persons referred to by the Exodus are not historical, only that we have no historical proof of them. And then I asked um, a friend of mine in Israel, uh, an American Jewish immigrant, um, what he thought uh, about all this uh, in the email. He said, the more audacious the historical claim involved, the harder it is to account for its acceptance by large numbers of people. Thus, the fact that the entire Jewish people seems to have unquestionably accepted from the earliest documented self-expression Exodus version of a rather large-scale divine interventions in world history, including some material not very flattering to the Jews, is very difficult to explain on the assumption that the Exodus story is not true. Or, as the New York Times put it uh, a couple of years ago, one Egyptian archaeologist, there is no evidence of the Exodus, it's a myth. Another Egyptian archaeologist, a pharaoh drowned and a whole army was killed. Egyptians do not document their crises. <laughs> uh, well, anybody want to ask anything about any of those historical questions? Mm -hmm. I was curious about the Genesis section that you covered. Yep. What kind of criteria there was for oral tradition? If there was any. Criteria for oral tradition? Yeah. I don't think we've got any. I, I don't. I don't know of any criteria, and I. Yeah. I don't, just don't think we know. to an example of that, and I think it is, uh, it is a, an illuminating one, uh, is the Greek historians like Herodotus and Thucydides, um, who illustrate, that, that is, that there aren't from the Middle East, there are only from, uh, there, there aren't um, 
historical type books like uh, the kind that um, the Augustan histories are, um, and the the, work, the Greek historians, Thucydides and um, a lot of Herodotus and Thucydides, um, are the first examples of something like that. Um, and the way in which they work is by compiling all sorts of stuff. Uh, well, not just compiling, but, but compiling it, not just compiling, but um, but some of it um, creating. So they will uh, pass on traditions, things that are around in the culture, about stories about what happened. They will pass on um, kind of cultural material in the sense of social customs, stuff like that. Uh, they will um, work out the kind of things that on an occasion like that um, would be the kind of thing that somebody would say or ought to have said, or that it helps you to understand what the significance of the, of the event was. They provide their own theological and moral um, comments and judgments. Um, uh, and, and all of that counts as what in well what you what you could what, what you could call there isn't another word for it, history writing, narrative. Um, and uh, it makes sense to me to reckon that Genesis and Exodus is, is that kind of thing. Um, that is that uh, I don't it seems to me to be I don't, I, there, there isn't any evidence for Genesis to Kings as a whole being put together in the form that we have it earlier than the exile. But the idea that somebody in the exile made it all up doesn't make sense in light of the Dutch I was talking about. And so that's some people in the exile afterwards were putting together material that had been handed down, some of it documentary, some of it written down, um, uh, and um, tradition, other traditional material and so on. Um, and, and that's how Genesis and Exodus came into existence. seems to me to be plausible. But, but that's a different sort of model for understanding than, than, than one that imagines stories being told down over the centuries and there being something about the culture that makes it possible to guarantee that they kept on telling the stories without it being like, what do you call, what do you call it, the telegraph game or the telephone? Telephone, um, in which by the time you get to the end of the line, it's totally different from what it was at the beginning. And it's sometimes said, oh, in all cultures, they were much better at passing stories on without them getting any change, without them getting changed over hundreds of years. I don't think there's any evidence for that. It might be true, but I don't know if there's evidence. Um, okay. Um, Um, intercession. The, the vision for intercession that I uh, like to suggest to you, these stories of um, Abraham uh, and Moses uh, offer to us, is one in which God uh, invites his people uh, into conversation about what's to be done in his world, um, and or receives uh, such involvement, even when God isn't a a actively inviting it. In other words, in the Abraham story, he's hanging around, waiting for Dr. Abraham, saying, as it were, saying to Abraham, anything you'd like to say to me about that? In the Moses story, um, I don't get the impression God is doing that, but, 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 but Moses knows it's okay to talk to God about these things. Um, that the idea that prayer is designed to change us, not to change God, is the exact opposite. Uh, of what scripture um, exemplifies in these stories and I'd say elsewhere. Prayer is designed to change God, uh, not as it were against God's will, but to get involved with God um, in discussing uh, what will happen. And part of the basis for that is that God is always having to make, well not always, but is often having to make, well maybe always, having to make decisions about what happens in the world on a 51 to 49 basis, the same as you and I are. God wants always to be long-suffering. 
as the Exodus 34 passage description of God um, suggests. But God knows there have, to come, there have to come moments when God says, okay, that's it, now I have to do something. But, but God um, makes that decision on the 51 to 49 verses, uh, and therefore it never takes much to push God back. Um, and to, to agree, okay, I need to do that, or I can do a bit less than that, or I can do it a different way. Uh, there's a, uh, a vividness then about the invitation into prayer and, and the assumption about it being okay to say things to God about prayer um, that is presupposed in, in these two stories. Now, as I indicated in what I said about Anne at the beginning today, um, I know what it's like to um, urge God to do something and have God say no. Uh, Paul knew what that was like. Uh, when, when that is, uh, and, and there's no, there's no problem about that. There's no problem about unanswered prayer. I mean, there's a problem about living with the end. Well, no, maybe, maybe there's that. Because, because if God, if whatever God decides, it's going to be okay. Uh, but uh, we can get involved with God in discussing what God is going to do, and specifically in these stories, significantly uh, in in challenging God not to implement an intention to bring judgment. And since since I've thought more about these stories, it's made me pray uh, about our nation, about our church, in a way that I never used to before. Because um, at the nation and the church, the nations and the churches in the West. Uh, can't complain if God brings judgment upon us. Um, and maybe God is going to. And just in case, it would be good idea to say to God, please continue to have mercy on our nation and on our church. Really. Um, and, uh, and what these stories suggest is that um, God sometimes takes notice of that, takes notice of that. And sometimes answers that, that prayer in a way that's different. Maybe, maybe doesn't do what implicitly, for instance, Abraham asks or even if this, in some ways what Moses asks. It may not come out the same as what you think, but it may nevertheless come out differently from what it would have done if you hadn't prayed. I don't know whether there are, frightened, whether there are more frightening verses uh, in Scripture than the one in James that says, you have not because you ask not. Uh, but um, I think that's a pretty frightening verse. Um, and what, when we give in to the... Um, I'm tempted to say demonic untruth, um, that prayer is designed to change us and not to change God, then we, uh, we risk um, not being involved in the sorting out of what God is, is to do in the world in the way that God invites us to, and not uh, receiving um, because we haven't asked. But uh, <coughs> when it is the case that we will occupy, yeah, yeah, the God says no, but... Um, how foolish a child would be if it never asked its mother for a cookie because sometimes mother says no. Um, anybody want to say anything about the discussion study? Mm-hmm. You got writing on your hand. I do. Okay. Well, you got that clear. <laughs> um, I think my question is along the lines of like. Okay, mine's more of like this short scenario. Um, our church is doing a worship event in like three weeks, and um, like 18 of us have signed up to pray an hour a day for that specific event. Um, is there... I don't know, because I, before listening to you, I really thought more along the lines of prayer exactly. Being to change us and put us in line with him rather than change God's heart about something. And that's not changing God's heart. Okay. But anyway, go on. Yeah. Change God's mind. Change God's decision. Decision. Um. So, but if it's not in the opposite side of like praying something to God, please bring. Like, if it's more like bringing the affirmative of God really use this event? Like, how, how does that work in intercessory prayer, like, according um, to the Bible? Uh, I, don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think that, the, that these stories tell you anything about that. 
And I don't think I've got any wisdom on that. Okay. That's, just, that's just not what we're about. It's the issue. And uh, I, um, yeah, I don't think I've got anything to say about that. Mm-hmm. The question about why does God use us to pray seems to me it reminds me I want to ask the question of God why do you use Moses to speak to Pharaoh mm-hmm. instead of speaking to Pharaoh all by yourself mm-hmm. if you were to stand out in the hall talk to me send me in here to then report to the class what you just said I run out and I get the next line from you and right here. It would be a pretty inefficient way of communicating, which is an interesting point. That we really know that God, that there's one thing that God doesn't care about, it's efficiency. <laughs> because we end up with God speaking to Moses, speaking to Aaron, then finally speaks to Pharaoh. And so... God seems insistent on using people to speak for him, to be involved in what God does instead of saying, pray, preach, prophesy, instead of just doing that on his own. And why bother to create us in the first place? And if God created us in order to look after his world, why why bother with it? God, God could have made a nice world without us. God could, 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 as you just implied, God could bring the gospel home to other countries without using, without using human beings. But, but the whole um, presupposition of the world that God created is one in which God does work with human beings. So in a way, you half implied, it's not surprising that God should use us in, in this prayer way because it's of a piece with all the other ways in which God, in which God uses people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. two simple questions over there. Um, the way I put it just now is if I were God, I would be very tempted to judge us. Um, and therefore, I don't need somebody to come and tell me that in order to drive me into asking God not to. Um, and so uh, even though there isn't somebody, um, there isn't a way in which God is saying to us I'm about to judge you as church or as nation. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I, don't know how, I, I don't know how to deal with that question either. But um, that um, that doesn't um, uh, take away from the invitation, pressure, challenge to talk to God about what uh, it wouldn't be surprising if God was thinking about doing. <laughs> um, but it does. Um, it, it, I guess it would be wise. It would be good. It would be wise for us to. Um, have in the back of our heads the possibility that God might send somebody and not assume that everybody who claims that they've been sent by God to say that and that is. Um, it's worth remembering, okay, God, God spoke to Abraham along these lines in, let's say, um, 15, 1500, and God did that through, to, that happened through Moses in 1200, and then Amos was about 850, I mean 7.15. Uh, only every few hundred years, so the chances of you being alive when this happens are pretty small. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 not something that, it's not something that happens every day, so it doesn't happen. The point of the story probably is, isn't a prophet might come to you tomorrow. Well, a prophet will, yeah, yeah, a prophet might come to you tomorrow. It might be, but don't rest everything on that, because statistically, it probably won't happen. <laughs> Uh, let me talk. Let's go back uh, to the questions about this question about marriage and family in Genesis, which I would have said something about last week. Um, but let me uh, first two or three questions that Chris passed on to me that that people raise. Um, one, somebody said to talk around a bit. Uh, what is I think? Um, 
haven't forgotten his name, but the uh, Jonathan Maganese uh, phrase that the call of Abraham was a, a most particularistic act to achieve the most universal hope. Uh, which is a mouthful, but it's actually um, a good mouthful. And it relates a little bit to, to, to this connotation. Uh, and it, again, it comes and expresses something I think I find that people are more and more kind of puzzled by. Why did God only speak to Abraham? Why didn't God speak to everybody? Um, and, and that is because that's part of the way that God... Op- Why should God open your eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? And not have done that to all the people walking up and down Colorado Boulevard at the moment. Um, and the nearest thing there is to an answer is that God's done it to you in order that the people walking up and down, in order that you should share that Colorado Boulevard. Um, to put it another way, um, honouring the 500th um, anniversary of the birth of John Calvin, which is was was. He's on Thursday or something? Sorry? The 10th? So that's Thursday, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what is election about? It's not about you being elected to salvation in order that other, uh, and other people being left out. It's about God electing you to salvation in order that other people come in. Um, and so, so God's choice of Abraham, that particularistic act, that choice of Abraham in particular, which ignored other people around, was designed to achieve the most universal hope. Designed to bring uh, hope, blessing uh, to, to everybody, not, to, you know, not just to Abraham, but to the nations. Um, probably nobody here, but at the most only one or two, are literal descendants of Abraham. We're, we're all Gentiles. We're all people who are outside. Um, but we are, we are inside now because that process of God's worked. Because, because some people saw the glory of God in the face of Christ um, and came to share that with somebody and with somebody and somebody and that's how they came to reach us. Um, and a kind of variant subset in a way on... Um, that same question is that there were some couple of questions people asked about Isaac and Ishmael, the theological implications of, um, of Isaac and Ishmael, um, which include the fact that again, in these stories, Ishmael is our guy. That on the assumption we're Gentiles, he stands for the Gentile world. Um, Ishmael again stands stands very clearly for the uh, for the Muslim world, for the Arab world. Um, and, it, and, and, and embodies, points towards God's involvement with the Arab world and God's commitment to the Arab world. So that paradoxically, when you go out to reach these people who are amongst the toughest people to reach for Christ, you actually go to people who, as it were, in God's heart or in God's story, uh, are very close to, to being the people that, um, that God has made a commitment to. Well, they are the people that God has made a commitment to, though even though they're not within the Special, the particular specialness of being the covenant line through which um, the Christ is going to be born. How does Islam understand itself understand the Ishmael story? Somebody wanted to know. Uh, the, oh, the the Isaac story, rather. Uh, the, the the Quran tells the story uh, of Abraham's near sacrifice of his son, but it doesn't give the son's name. Uh, later. Um, uh, Muslim uh, uh, tradition uh, generally says it was Ishmael, um, though there are strands of that tradition which um, look as if they imply that it was Isaac. But it's not surprising if the way the tradition has developed, there's been a polarizing within the tradition uh, that's made Muslims assume that, that the guy in the story is their guy, um, rather than it being Isaac. Um, but they, they do have in the Quran the story worked, worked out even more or less the same way, but, but without naming the child. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only Well, presumably he means, uh, God, God means the, uh, 
as it were, the only proper son, the one, the one son who is the, the, the fulfillment of God's promise, the one son that Abraham and Sarah themselves have had, the, the one son who is to be the, the, the covenant line. Which I can understand why the, um, why the Muslims would have difficulty. Uh, Not if it was Israel. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 Mm. Yes, that's right. Who's it? Who's Isaac? Yes. Yes. You, yes sure. Yeah. The. Um, I don't know whether that. Um, I didn't. I didn't look up the Quran again um, in in connection with this question, and I don't know that the Quran includes those particular words. And somebody will now Google the Quran. <laughs> in fact, they've already done it and tell us the answer. Yeah. Meanwhile. How are they what? Are they affiliated? Is it just the same guy? Well, well, the Midianites, um, uh, who I was talking earlier on, are are amongst them. Midian is is one of the sons of Keturah, Abraham's third wife, I think. If I'm not, I may not have the detail of that right, but it's roughly right. Um, and so when um, Joseph tells stories about Jethro or other characters who show up, the Kenites who show up, Caleb and the Kenites who show up, sounds like a band um, in the story, uh, then um, the implication is that they, they are working with a, a, a kind of knowledge of God and within that fr- same framework, if you like, as Ishmael. But, but they, they're still going to need to know the Exodus story because that's still going to be the story through which God is working. Would it be similar to, say, like the Coptic Christians and Orthodox Christians and Stephen Christians where the details are just kind of getting... No, because the because as far as because the the story of what God is doing through Israel through the Exodus through Christ isn't details of the story. It's the center of it. It's giving a different center to the story. Uh, no, not yet. Okay, let me say a few things about marriage and family in Genesis on page fifty-nine. <coughs> Some of these things that I mentioned at the, at the beginning uh, when we looked at Genesis, but so this is kind of summarizing an understanding of marriage and family that, that, um, that comes from Genesis. And it overflows also into, when we come to look at some of the laws in Exodus, you'll see some of the same issues uh, recurring or being presupposed. Uh, when, the, when Genesis talks about, or for that, for that matter, the Old Testament as a whole, talks about marriage and about husbands and wives, it doesn't have special words for that in the way that we do. Uh, the, word, the usual word for a husband is simply the word for a man. He's my man, she's my woman. Um, uh, and the good news in that is that if they did use the technical words for husband and wife, uh, then they would be using words that meant master or owner on the one hand, and mastered or owned on the other hand. So it's, if anything, it's a kind of affirmation about the, the egalitarian relationship, which we'll come back to in a little bit in a minute. Uh, between husbands and wives that presupp- that's presupposed in these stories. Uh, and don't believe anybody who says to you that, um, uh, that, that, that the Torah has uh, a property understanding of marriage. It doesn't have that anymore. I mean, it will talk about her man and about, or about uh, her, her woman. Uh, I'm sorry, about his woman, which makes it sound as if he owns her. But then you will talk about her man. Um, and they know more of a property understanding of marriage then there is one implied by um, our, our still um, in existing custom whereby some old guy like me conducts his um, daughter up to the altar and somebody, old guy at the front says, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And you do this to her. Well, what kind of talk do you understand is that? Uh, and when you read these stories, you can, I mean, you can't mess with people like Sarah and Rebecca, can you? They're not people who think that they're just um, pieces of uh, property owned by these guys. Just try it on one of those. Woo. Um, I use the phrase there, secondary wives. Somebody in a posting used the word concubine, which is rather misleading, because concubine, at least sometimes in English, um, suggests some kind of an immoral relationship. Uh, the relationship of, say, Hagar to Abraham is not an immoral relationship. She becomes uh, a, 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 a kind of wife. But a secondary wife in the sense that somebody's wife... I think you may be able to have more than one primary wife 
uh, and you can have a you can have a secondary wife when you have not a primary wife, because the distinction is one between is something to do with um, the legal rights um, of your children, uh, whether whether your children have the right of inheritance. Um, so there is a socially organised what we would think of as a legal uh, kind of system uh, for husbands and wives and secondary wives. Um, and that's uh, and, and the the people who are often referred to as concubines are a form of uh, legal wife. Uh, when you get married, it, you, there are one or two indications, concrete indications in, in the Old Testament that you enter into a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenantal relationship, and certainly it is the case that the essence of a covenant is that you have a, is, is that you have a relationship which is not a natural relationship. That is, there is a natural relationship between parents and children. Parents and children are not in covenant relationship. You can't get out of being a parent. Uh, but, but when you enter into a marriage, you enter extraordinarily into a committed relationship with somebody who isn't in your family. And that's, that's why uh, you would naturally think of marriage, the marriage relationship as a covenantal relationship. It introduces into the relationship the kind of commitment that is inevitable and natural, as it were, <coughs> in family relationships, into this extra, uh, extra family relationship. Who takes the initiative in, in marriage? Who decides um, who should get married? Um, well, again, the stories uh, suggest that there is uh, a certain amount of freedom, freedom on the women's part. Rebecca doesn't have to go off um, in order to go marry Isaac. They have to ask her. There is some initiative, commonly, uh, with the family. But um, that doesn't mean that the people involved don't have any say in it themselves. The opening of Genesis suggests that marriage is a shared vocation. Uh, a man and a woman together are involved in subduing and serving the world. Uh, and there, at the, at the opening of Genesis, as is suggested by much of the language, it's an egalitarian relationship. It's one in which they are equal uh, partners. There's very little... Uh, talk in terms of uh, romance in connection with marriage in Genesis, um, that's not its focus. Uh, and specifically um, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's no interest in romance as an aspect of marriage. It doesn't mean that, that when you met Adam and Eve on their own, or Rebecca and Isaac or whoever, there wasn't so romance there. It's that Genesis isn't talking about that. If you want to know about romance, you have to go and read the Song of Songs, don't read Genesis. Um, the trouble is, the whole, that whole intention of God's goes wrong, and as Derek Kidner puts it, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. And um, sexual practices such as divorce and prostitution uh, and polygamy come in as part of the spoiling uh, of, what, of the, the nature of that relationship, what the nature of that relationship is designed to be, like in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, they are then divorce and remarriage. Um, in particular, and, and, and polygamy, um, are accepted without there being much, without there being overt critique of them uh, throughout the Old Testament, and for that matter, um, in quite often with regard to polygamy in the New Testament too. Uh, but they aren't assumed to be ideals; they are assumed to be realities. Uh, and I'm coming to think that uh, we ought to take a similar view about same-sex unions. Um, that they are not simply another equally valid form of union, but on the other hand, uh, they are no, theologically, they are no worse than divorce and remarriage, or polygamy. But I'm a heretic. <laughs> um, family, uh, it, with, um, even more than with marriage, the terms are tricky. Uh, we assume that we know what a family is. It's a guy and his wife and his 2.4 children. It used to be 2.4, it's about 1.6 in Europe now. Um, in the Old Testament, the distinction is between a household, which is closer to being something uh, that we would recognize as a family, um, and a kin group. Um, but both these terms, the household and the kin group, um, are terms that some people refer to as an extended family. Both of them are, well, one's, a bit, one's rather more extended than the other, you could say. Um, in, Israel, in the houses in, in Israelite villages, uh, you often see a, a, a number of little houses clustered together um, in a particular house will be occupied by something not so very different from what we would call a nuclear family. But next door and next door but one are other members of the same, what we might call extended family. Uh, 
the the family of the the life of the family is a whole life arrangement. It, it covers the whole um, uh, of your life. This is the unit that relates to God. Uh, it's it's the unit it's the unit of worship. It's the unit that works because the uh, the family owns the um, the land and tills the land. Uh, and it's an arrangement for hospitality because this family um, uh, and kin group will include people like uh, widows and orphans who no longer have family links, as well as the alien, the sojourner, the resident alien, the person from some other country who's fled to get out of being a slave, or who's, who's come from another part of the, of the country of Israel because they couldn't um, uh, make their farm work, they lost their land or something. Um, or uh, a context where people who's, uh, who haven't been able to make their farm work locally uh, are able to work as servants in order to try to get back to being, uh, being viable as uh, a working unit. The family is, is a structure for hospitality. Hospitality doesn't mean giving somebody lunch, and it doesn't mean giving, the bed, giving them a bed overnight. It means becoming, it means becoming part um, of um, uh, their uh, set of relationships. There's quite a lot of concern, uh, we'll see, in the laws with family discipline uh, against the background of a recognition that's come through clearly in Exodus of the family as a place of conflict. I mean, they are so dysfunctional, these families, are they not? Um, but also in, in the Joseph story in particular, well, no, the Jacob, Jacob and Esau are other Joseph stories, um, places of reconciliation. Uh, so that the way in which the family story is told in Genesis is one that is both realistic and hopeful in the way in which it talks about the way that things work out in families. Um, well, that's the six-minute version of the lecture that the, the poor guys who originally watched those, uh, who were receiving the lecture when I did the video, they didn't, they didn't even get the six-minute version, so you can see as I was lucky. Um, anybody want to say anything about that? Mm -hmm. um, you say there's no romance in one and two, but would you make then of the Adam, you know, the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? Well, he's, he's, he's recognizing, well, to say something is the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh is actually to say, you're my family. He's to say, um, you know, we, we say blood is thick in the water. She's my own flesh and blood. Um, yeah, he, he, he's saying that this person who is different from me uh, I recognise that somebody is going to be one in one in life as a family with me. They were very romantic, Adam and Eve. But just Genesis doesn't tell you. It's the Song of Songs. You have to read the Song of Songs and then imagine that's what life was like in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but whether it was only for five minutes, I don't know. Uh, okay. Now. Um, on the sheet it says circumcision and Passover, uh, and you will find on pages 71 to 73 some stuff about um, circumcision and about Passover, first of all, and then about circumcision, which will answer, or at least will give you the only answers I'm capable of giving you, the questions that you wanted to ask about circumcision back in Genesis 17, and also the questions about circumcision that you really want to ask after you've read Exodus chapter 4. Um, and they are, um, uh, I think, self-explanatory. So uh, you can read those if you want to. Uh, because what I want to do in the last five minutes is uh, preview, trailer for you, uh, something that you're going to be doing for Wednesday uh, in thinking about liberation theology um, and Exodus. <coughs> In fact, if you, if you turn on to page 77 for a moment, which says at the top, hermeneutical approaches to Exodus. Um, uh, and paragraph 2 there, th that stuff will come in the video. Paragraph 2 there introduces you to, th to the theology of liberation. And it's maybe a help to have read this before you do the reading about the man of God and the suffering servant, one of the things you're going to do for Wednesday. The Exodus, um, says, the, says liberation theology, shows us God's involvement in leading people from political bondage to political freedom. 
Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, who was the original liberation theologian um, in 1969 or thereabouts. The liberation of Israel is a political action. It is the breaking away from a situation of despoliation, being despoiled, and misery, and the beginning of the construction of a just and fraternal society. It is the suppression of disorder and the creation of a new order. The situation of Latin American peoples with their repression, alienated work, humiliation, and enforced birth control policy, birth control policy enforced by us, parallels and enables us to understand the situation of Israel. Kind of thing you read in Exodus 1 and 2. And God's raising up of the liberator there makes us look for that here. Uh, that was the, those were some of the basic convictions of liberation theology uh, 40 years ago. Now, in the end, in the Latin American context, it led nowhere. Uh, it led nowhere because, um, well, God didn't raise up a liberator. Um, disorder did not get suppressed, and the, creation, and, and the creation of a new order did not come about. Um, and the theological instincts that lay behind liberation theology went in other direct, tried other ways of looking for what God might be doing and how, how progress might be made. And then liberation theology, in a way, got overtaken by post-colonial theology, post-colonial thinking. And in that sense, studying uh, liberation theology, th the, the liberation theology's um, interpretation of Exodus, it is a piece of, histo of historical theology, in a way, historical, the history of interpretation. But, but looking at what, what they did with Exodus, the way they studied it, is illuminating in its own right as an exercise in seeing how pe some people went about the interpretation of Exodus, what things they were able to see, but also what things they needed to, to miss, and what, what things, and the things that they missed in their study of Exodus in the 1960s and the 1970s. Um, uh, one of the points that, that I seek to make in the article that you'll uh, read is that one of their problems was reading the Exodus story on its own. Uh, whereas the Exodus story is part of the story of God, what, of what God was doing with Israel uh, over centuries. And the um, low point of the story, uh, in Genesis to Kings as a whole, comes when the Israelites are back in exile in Babylon, in a place where God had taken them from in the time of Abraham. The Exodus in that sense had led nowhere. Um, and the context of exile makes Israelite theologians reflect on the significance of suffering uh, and, and what God might achieve through that, as well as on the significance um, of great acts of triumphant victory and release uh, and what God achieves through that. And a tricky question uh, that then needs to, be thought, need, needs to be thought through, and that has, uh, did come to be thought through a little bit in liberation theology, is, is the living with and the relationship between the great triumph and acts of God um, and the uh, things that God achieves by means of suffering. You'll also be looking at um, God's presence in Exodus, in the Exodus 32 to 34 stories. <coughs> and the idea there is that there are, there are various ways in which the stories talk, well, no, Exodus as a whole, talks about God's presence. What do we mean by, when we say God is here, what do we mean? God's everywhere. When you say God was especially there that night, what do you mean? When we pray, uh, Lord, we want to see you, what do we mean? We use a lot of words like that without having thought through what we mean. Um, and the way in which Exodus talks about the presence of God may help, to, may help us to see the various sorts of things that we mean by the presence of God. So those are things you're going to do for Wednesday. Okay? Goodbye. I'll see you on Monday.